Now hear this, now hear this. Week 3 of Quantacamp begins at 0500 hours. We start with a 10 mile run in full gear, then a 3 mile swim across Alligator Swamp, followed by calisthenics led by Lieutenant Satan. Following breakfast, we muster under the flag to hear Sergeant Q discuss how we can use existing data both to drive and support our novel quantitative contributions. Your assignment for the remainder of the day is to identify potential data sets you can use in your own quantitative work. Carry on. We got a comment on Twitter a few days ago that I really, really liked. I know that you don't follow it too closely, mainly because I don't let you. Yes. But you you take an image of a posting and then text it to me. Yes. And so I appreciate that. <laughs> it's like my mom who really does continue to clip and send me New York Times articles. Yes. Knowing full well I have an electronic subscription to the New York Times. <laughs> so yes, you are the equivalent of my mom sending me That's a New right. York Times article. I don't remember the exact line, honestly, but it was something like, quantitude is not a place where you have to dream in math in order to be a member of this community. And I was so thankful for that particular comment, because I think that's what we've been trying to aim for. You did share that with me. So you did clip it, put mm-hmm. it in an envelope, put a stamp on yeah. it, and mail it to me, which I deeply appreciate. I completely agree. And at least from my own perspective, it has the added advantage of being true. I do not dream in math. And indeed, when I hit a particular level, I struggle with math which is probably what led me to statistics. Right. (laughs) That's right. But, you know, in the spirit of that particular comment, I think in the last few episodes, we have really tried to hammer that home. We had the call to arms where we tried to let everybody know that you don't have to be some pure quantitative methodologist to participate in this community and to make quantitative contributions. We're all able to make these contributions. And then when we started QuantiCamp, we tried to convey to people how they might go about getting a quantitative idea and how quantitative ideas can take many, many forms. And then the last episode was about people trying to maybe think about what journals they have. As I've told you before, I'm a big Harry Potter fan, and it reminds me of the time when Harry first meets Hagrid, and Hagrid comes in and breaks the news to Harry that he's a wizard. And I think what we're trying to do here is to tell our friends out there that we all have the capability of this particular wizardry. We just might not have known that about ourselves so far. Okay, I want to hear you restate that in Hagrid's voice. (laughs) Uh, You're a wizard, Patrick And a thumping good one, I'll wager Once you've been trained up a bit Nice! What do you think, Bit of an overlap with Gossett Not quite so drunk or angry (laughs) I thought it was overlapped more with your mom, maybe (laughs) You're a wizard, Patrick Magic up me some smokes, boy (laughs) There! Done and done. (laughs) So we're moving in a direction, I think, where we're trying to equip people with tools, right? To get people to realize that we're wizards. We need to understand some of the tools that are available to us. Let me just ask you, if you don't mind, since you're one of the biggest tools I know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're going in a particular direction, and I think the direction has to do with helping people to figure out what tools are available to them to do this. I think we're going to expand upon that a bit today, so maybe you could lead us off in that. This is a little pop quizzy, as I'm going to draw my expertise as a tool. Mm-hmm. But there are different ways that we can approach this. And so one thing that I hope we communicated in the call to arms, but not only is it 
Are we all capable of making quantitative contributions in our substantive area of studies? But more so, that's where the most meaningful and important contributions come from. Mm-hmm. We need the psychometricas of the world. We need the asymptotic standard errors. But I think it's not just, no, you could do this if you wanted. That is the hotbed for where important ideas and important contributions come from. And so as we navigate into the summer, what I'm envisioning is to think, well, okay, how do we do that? What do you have available in a mechanism to allow you to make this unique contribution in your field and to related fields? It's Mm -hmm. not just, oh, there are eight people who do this and I'm going to tell them this thing I learned. We're a giant multidimensional Venn diagram where all of our areas in some way intersect with other areas. Mm -hmm. When I think about what are the tools we have available, the very first one that comes to mind is using empirical data in a variety of different ways. And what I'd like to puzzle through is there's some obvious ways that we can do that, but maybe there's some less obvious ways where we can leverage data. And maybe it's data that you already have access to in your own lab or in your own project. But what we can explore is there are motherships of data out there that are publicly Mm -hmm. available and searchable and indexable that is a remarkable resource that we can use. I would say, let's go into the shed and grab the first thing hanging on the door. And that is, we are all empirical Mm -hmm. researchers. Data is the coin of the realm. And how do we use that to move our quantitative ideas forward? Yeah, I like that a lot. And a lot of our friends out there in substantive fields have access to their own data, of course, because they gather those data toward a particular purpose. But I think what we're really focusing on here are data that are sought with a particular eye toward whatever quantitative research means in your eyes and what it is you're doing. So we're going to try and talk about how you can access those types of data. So how would you like to start this off? I have some scribbled notes. I walked down to the park in my neighborhood last night with a pen and a sheet of paper and made some notes, and they're not particularly well organized. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the discussion of just where are data available? Mm -hmm. Because I think there are a lot of interesting things to talk about is once you have data, what are different kinds of things that you can do with it? But it's a nice starting point of just saying, how do I come to a place where I have access to data that helps me in some way that I desire? So did you want to lead us off with something that you're thinking about? No, please. If you've got a list, I don't. Okay. Okay. I think you do. I think you could talk about access to data sets till the cows come home. Go to ICPSR and search. That's my recommendation. If you can add to that in any way, great. I'm I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) I forget the acronym. It's the Intercollaborative Collegiate something for social science research. I really should have looked that up. This is the extent of your preparation. (laughs) You had one thing on your not list, and you couldn't remember what it stands for. You know what? I'm going to Google right now. What is ICPSR? Well, we all know it's the Inter-University Consortium for Political and Social Research. I'm a little disappointed, Greg, that you weren't aware of that. I think it is the largest repository of available data in the country, and it is searchable, and you can download, and there are manuals, and there are code books, and crosswalks. It's an absolutely remarkable resource 
See, that I was, was nice. prepared. Yeah. You... <laughs> yes. Okay. If you want to wrap up here, I'm going to go finish some things <laughs> in the other part of the house. Okay. So, okay. Bye-bye. In my neck of the woods, as I mentioned, a lot of the data sets revolve around education and the National Center for Education Statistics is the arm of the Department of Education that's really responsible for collecting data and disseminating summary information about those data. And they've been doing that for over 150 years by congressional mandate, which means that they have lots of different data sets associated with various projects that have been involved. And I have a list of some of those uh, data sets, and I'll just mention a couple of them that are popular. As you mentioned, the IP. QTS. Yeah, well done. Whatever it was that you so clearly articulated for us. But here are some data sets in education that are used for a lot of things that cut well beyond education. You might have even used some of these in some of the nice work that you've done. But there's the ECLS, so the uh, Mm. Early Childhood Longitudinal Study. Lots of nice longitudinal data where you get kids in kindergarten, first grade, elementary school. Very nice to try to illustrate some developmental phenomena. Of course, these data weren't created for people to illustrate methodological things. They were gathered for people to be able to address substantive questions, but it's a very nice source of longitudinal data. You get NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which hits kids at a lot like 4th, 8th, and 12th grade. Very nice to have, although it does so cross-sectionally. You get NELS, the National Educational Longitudinal Study, which is really wonderful. You get kids 8th, 10th, and 12th grade. Uh, And these are just U.S. data sets. There are also international data sets that can be really nice when you're trying to illustrate methods for doing group comparisons, whether it's invariance kinds of stuff. These are acronyms that people out there might have heard before. We've got PISA and PIAC and PEARLS and TIMS, and I could unpack all of those acronyms, but I don't need to do that here. I Um, can Google them real quick for you if you'd like. (laughs) But anyway, so the point is that there's a lot of wonderful stuff out there, whether it's, you know, in my neck of the woods, which tends to be a bit more education-oriented or otherwise. And I think people are making real concerted efforts online to be able to make those kinds of things accessible to people, A, for drilling down and answering really interesting substantive questions, and in our case right now, not that we don't care about substantive things, but being able to involve these data in quantitative projects that people have. On my side of the street, in terms of stuff that we've used for more behavioral science, psychology-like things, another big one is the NLSY, National Longitudinal Survey of Youth. That was originally Bureau of Labor Statistics mm-hmm. that was studying factors associated with young adults entering the workforce. It goes back into the 1970s. But it was really brilliant, as tends to happen with kids, is they grow up and have kids of their own. And there's an addendum of the children of the Mm -hmm. NLSY. And it is a remarkable resource because you have detailed data on the parents maybe 10 or 20 years before they ever had their first child. Here at Carolina, something called Ad Health, Mm -hmm. the Adolescent Health Study. It's housed at the Carolina Population Center. 
that is absolutely remarkable data file. Mm -hmm. Comment about yours in the European sources is for a lot of countries, particularly Scandinavian, mm -hmm. there are remarkable data files available, not necessarily that you can just download with impunity. You need to submit proposals and get permission, but because of socialized healthcare, mm -hmm. they have data on hundreds of thousands of people starting from birth. It's required, right? That they gather exactly. those data. Yeah. yeah. Something that I would recommend is in your own area, jump on Google Scholar and just type whatever your area of study is in secondary data analysis. There are lots of resources out there that talk about this. So, for example, back in the early 90s, McCall and Applebaum wrote a paper that I think was in developmental psychology, but they talked about secondary data analysis in developmental psych. And so how do you test theoretically derived research hypotheses using existing data? They have this thing that I like. They propose what's called a feasibility matrix, where you try to cross what are the characteristics of the sample, the ages, the measures, and see to what extent does that overlap with your hypotheses. And then the other one is there's a wonderful woman at the University of Michigan named Pamela Davis Keene, and she has written two or three really nice and thoughtful papers on using existing data to test developmental kinds of questions. And she has one on general issues and secondary data analysis in, I think it appeared in Child Development Perspectives, and I don't have the year, but it was six or eight years ago maybe. And then she has some really interesting recent ones on more big data. In one of those papers, and I think it's the one on just secondary data, she has a table in there of different sources, web pages. But my point is those are all in child development. And if you're right. in that area of work, I highly recommend reading her work on this. But there are similar resources in other areas of study as well. Yeah. And as people who do quantitative methodology in what we would like to think is a fairly pure form, we look to these data oftentimes to illustrate the methods that we come up with, the ice cream sandwiches that we put together and call unique. So we're often hunting through these looking for good data sets to illustrate things. And these data sets are not always cooperating. Uh, and we can probably talk about a few ways in which they present their own unique challenges. But these data sets are not merely to illustrate a new method that you have. And if we pull back and think about the types of contributions that some of the people in our QPod community might be doing, they might be doing an illustration of a method that's unfamiliar to their substantive area. And that's what the paper is going to be that they wish to publish. Or they might be doing some comparative type of paper where they want to analyze data using a more traditional approach that's common in their field, as well as an approach that they have more recently learned about to be able to highlight some of the differences and some of the benefits that you might get with a more modern analytic approach. So whatever reason you're going to these data, there are a lot of things to think about as you start to deal with these data with your sleeves rolled up. And another source that maybe we should have started with okay. is colleagues. Yeah, that's right. If you're a more junior person, talk to your advisor. If you're a more senior person, think through your department hallways who is working on what that might offer an opportunity to collaborate in some way if you work together on their own data files. So 
win-win situation as you can still use that to push a quantitative contribution. I mean, I think almost without exception, people are going to be on board in being part of that in a collaborative way. And so maybe wander around your own backyard before reaching out to these other broader public data files. And what you said to lead that all off was maybe we should have started with this. I'm embarrassed that I didn't say that. That's the best, right? When you get a chance to work with other people and you're probably bringing new insights into their data, you're getting to know somebody a little better on the other side of some fence. And that's a a real person collaboration is way better than a Google search pretty much any day. So I'm envisioning our usual ping pong game, (laughs) which we tend to do every time. And it's fun because I have my little scribbles down. And again, I told you this last episode as I moved from a sticky to a sheet of paper, I have an entire sheet of paper. Now, I didn't use it all, but nonetheless, I have a sheet of paper. But we haven't talked about what each of us highlighted on this. So we're going to teleport ahead in the summer. And you have identified some potential data files. Maybe you've downloaded them. Maybe you're still sorting through the pros and cons, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's part of it, that feasibility matrix kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Well, the best data file that helps you test your hypothesis by definition needs you to articulate what those hypotheses are. There's a bit of a circular relation. But let's say that we have a data file and we're thinking about that. What are different things that we could do with that with respect to our call to arms? All right. So I know that you said we were going to play ping pong, but maybe I could bring a little bit more structure to this. More structure than (laughs) ping pong. You need to structure it more than ping pong. It's true. It is a fairly structured game. Well, just let's roll with it and see what happens. All right. Indulge me. Okay. Um, So what I thought I would do, and we've mentioned some types of research questions that one might have so far that involve some existing data. Um, But let's try and put an architecture around that. And what I mean by that is let's imagine that someone out there actually did the homework. In fact, let's just talk to those two people directly. (laughs) Imagine that they have been with us, that they have been crafting a research question and... What else did we tell them to do? Oh, yeah. Go through journals. Oh, yeah. Go through journals. You made them read the mastheads of journals. I love that. I did. Right. You made them go to the library. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so imagine that those two people have actually done that. And now we're going to start talking about some research questions that involve data. And what I will do is I'll just imagine some different scenarios, and then we can ping pong within that if you need ping pong. Okay, thank you. I do need ping pong, so I appreciate that. Okay, so the first type that we can talk about, um, someone has a substantive question for which they really want to try some cool quantitative approach, and that approach might not be as familiar to their particular field, or maybe it is familiar, it's just not something that the researcher has much exposure to. We can also flip that and say that someone has their hands on a data set that looks very, very rich, and they're feeling a research question coming out of that where they want to try out a particular method. So I don't actually care which comes first, whether the research question comes and someone is looking for data to try to address that substantive question, or if someone has data and they're trying to craft around it. Are you saying that somebody is motivated primarily by a substantive question that they want to bring a novel analytic method to bear on? Or is somebody have just a cool kick-ass data set that they think that something interesting can be done with? 
I think what I said did come off a little bit like the latter in part, but I really do mean that this is being driven by substance. So if they are holding a data set in their hand, they're not just going, huh, I wonder what I could do with this data set. Um, they have a data set. Okay, because... just to interrupt briefly, uh-huh. that got me tenured, so <laughs> I wouldn't mind if you backed off a step. <laughs> okay. So the idea is that substance is behind things, whether it was in the choice of the data set that's in someone's area of interest or if they have arrived at the data set because of a question and they were using that to search for data sets. I like that. So what I'd like us to do maybe, and maybe this is where the ping pong part starts, is to think about what kind of issues might arise when dealing with such data or finding such data. And if you have thoughts in that arena, did you want to start the ping pong match? No, go for it. You're on a roll. Dang it. All right. A lot of what I have to say will probably revolve around a theme. But let me start with the nature of the data set itself. And what I mean by that is that when you go to the web and you download a data set, that data set oftentimes is not the original data. Those are public use data. And that means that there is often a super secret dark web data set that you can't get access to unless you get permission to use it. And the variables that you have, the data that you have, have often been altered in some way. And it's a way that might make things a bit more difficult for you to tease out some of your substantive questions the way you want. Or another way to look at it is that maybe it involves a bit more uh, methodological wizardry. But some of the ways that the data that you might have access to, if they're not the restricted data set, some of the ways that those data might be compromised certainly revolve around the identifiability of the individuals. Oftentimes, right, the restricted data set might have enough information for you to be able to identify that one Pacific Islander who's teaching math in Mississippi in the eighth grade and has been for 10 years and makes a salary of $48,000. You mean William? (laughs) You know Will? I know Will. Exactly. Oh, what a small world. (laughs) Right. So oftentimes the data set that people have access to is going to be restricted in some way in terms of the information you are given. It might be that some variables that you find very interesting demographically have been eliminated altogether. Or it might be the case that some of the variables have been altered. For example, maybe actual income had been gathered previously, whereas now you just get categories. The person makes between mm. you know, 0 and 25,000, 25,000 and 50,000. And so you get data that are far more coarse. And what that means is then that starts to present its own analytical challenges. So the first thing that just comes to mind when you're interfacing with these data out there is that the data might not be nearly as clean as you would wish them to be. And as I said, that might invoke some coolness on the part of the analytics. On the other hand, it might also mean that you're beating your head against the wall quite a bit. That's a really interesting point. And it's not one in some of the secondary data analysis that I've done. I've actually not encountered a lot of that myself. I'm not saying it's not out there, just my own experiences. Mm -hmm. You know what the poke in the eye for me has been is you have the code book and it gives a scale score and it's a composite of six items and you get really excited about it and you download it and you have the scale score but Mm -hmm. you don't have the six items yeah a lot of times people think well why would anybody need the six items we made the scale score yeah if you're interested in measurement if you're interested in looking at alternative scale scores If you're interested in saying, all right, well, how would we compare a mean score to a principal component score to a factor score estimate? 
those things are just gone. Yeah. I agree with you completely, and I'm only pulling off on my own anecdotal experiences, but that's been more my problem, is how many times my hopes have been thrown against the rocks, where you read the code book, and it's like, oh, this is amazing, and then you download it, and you get like three means. Yep. That, That doesn't mean it's impossible to get access to restricted data, but oftentimes there's a very, very long process to do so. I think it involves urine specimens, maybe. Uh, I'm not entirely Your sure. Your own or someone I, else's? I usually send them in anyway, just in case. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't be too careful. You um, can <laughs> never be too careful. I will go ahead and take my first available opportunity to embrace the obvious, mm-hmm. which is a cornerstone of my entire role on this podcast, which is there's always a quality quantity balance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these larger data sets, they're remarkable. And the things that Greg and I talk about is we're not knocking the data sets, the designers, things like that. I mean, these are remarkable resources, but decisions need to be Mm -hmm. made. The more constructs that you want some coverage of, the fewer number of items you're going to be able to use to do that. Mm -hmm. I've used the NLSY quite a bit. You get starry-eyed reading the code book, but then you see, oh, this core construct of yours is assessed by three items. Yeah, absolutely right. Going back to your reviewer comment, I'm giving away all of my anonymous reviewers. This is really nice, (laughs) as I'm just going to be able to stop reviewing Uh (laughs) because I can no longer provide anonymous peer reviews. I just use your phrases now. (laughs) <laughs> oh, God. That's, I told you, man, I'm going to write an entire review that says you need to read uh-huh. the collected works of Dr. Uh-huh. Hancock. Imagine that someone wants to write a didactic paper on a method, and it might be for a teacher's corner. It might be for a special issue. And the role of the data here is to help flesh out the illustration, to give it a certain realness to the reader. So the goal here is someone says, I am so interested in latent transition analysis. It is so cool. My field doesn't use it at all. I really want to go find a nice data set to help me illustrate this as I write a paper that is primarily didactic. So what do you see as some of the issues for someone who has that as their methodological goal here? I love those kind of papers, Mm -hmm. and I think that they could be a really promising option for Mm -hmm. a lot of folks because you've got something new you've learned or you're aware of some technique that isn't well represented in your area. Mm -hmm. And what you really want to do is to give a step-by-step demonstration of this new technique in the service of disseminating these methods into your field so that other people can use those in their own work. And so I think this is very, very promising, and I get very excited. It's what sleeper cells do, right? (laughs) Exactly. I think you can, with clear conscience, back a little bit away from the theoretical rationale, the theoretically derived research hypothesis, some of the things that we just touched on, Mm -hmm. the making sure that you have comprehensive psychometric coverage, because you have a little bit different of a priority here, is trying to identify a data set that gives a realistic representation of how these methods would be used in your particular field. You really want to work on closing that gap between the characteristics of the data and the kinds of analysis you're going to do and how those would most typically be used in your area of research. I have a question for you. I want, to, I want to interview you on this particular point. Are you ready? Uh, my lawyer has instructed me 
to not respond further. Thank you, Senator. That came so quickly to you that I am concerned. All right, here we go. So you are writing a teacher's corner piece. You are trying to seed your field with some new methodological innovation. And you have looked for a data set that you think will do a pretty good job of illustrating the method or methods that you want to do. But let's say the data have variables that are ordinal with four categories or survey weights associated with them, or let's say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that there are these additional little wrinkles to the data that are very realistic as far as the data are concerned, Mm -hmm. but that might be perceived as peripheral to the main point of what you do. How do you feel about walking that line between the reality of the data and fidelity to the illustration itself? It is such a tricky needle to thread Mm -hmm. because I could take the high road and say, you're not doing anybody any favors by not analyzing the data in the way that you should. Mm-hmm. And so if there's sample weights, if it's a three or four level ordinal, that you need to make that as part of the demonstration. That, I think, is my rigid high road. I mm-hmm. think the pragmatic, lighten up, dude. We're just trying to look <laughs> at these other things we're highlighting. I myself have ignored sampling weights. Uh-huh. You pick your battles, right? So whether it be with your spouse, whether it be with your dog, <laughs> whether it be with your analysis. But here's the problem. People can't help but draw substantive conclusions from a substantive analysis of a real data set. And if you have a four-level ordinal that you're ignoring and there are sampling weights that you are ignoring and you say we are doing this for pedagogical purposes only, Mm -hmm. you're still throwing the cookie out on the table and saying, don't eat this. Yeah, right. And I think the fact that you're doing it in a substantively driven environment does put a little bit more burden on you to try to solve both problems, the pedagogical goals as well as the inferential goals. And to the extent that you can do both, good on you. To the extent that you need to take some sort of shortcuts, you really have to make that warning label plain. Yes, you need a warning label, except I hate warning labels. I think one of the worst statements anybody can write in a paper, and I can say this because (laughs) I've written it in maybe a dozen papers. Uh That's where the hypocrisy comes in. The results should be interpreted with caution. Mm -hmm. What the hell does (laughs) that mean? That is one of the most vacuous cover-your-butt statements. Uh Although, I don't know if I have a better option. Yeah. I would say at the very least, it's incumbent upon the author to weigh these things, make the appropriately cautious statements in the end. But if you can, try to balance. You have to keep your eye on the ball, meaning that your motivation and your goal in a situation such as this is to get a tool out to the researchers. And we don't want to say, oh, well, you didn't use sampling weights, so you shouldn't do it at all. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a middle ground and just have self-awareness that you have to strike that balance and saying, yes, I don't want to say something as vacuous as interpret the results with caution, 
But the goal of the paper is to demonstrate this method, and that's the important part. So exactly. I hope that's helpful to everybody out there. Good. Is be sure to do it, but don't do it. But yeah. be sure to do it, but under all conditions, don't do it, as long as you're sure to do it. I think we're really improving, Patrick. We're on a roll. I yeah. think, you know, over a season, this has gotten way better wow. than it was. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Permission to move to a third type of paper. Number one was you have a substantive question that you're going to rigorously evaluate with a novel method. Number two is, Mm -hmm. is you're going to use existing data to demonstrate and disseminate a technique in a pedagogical way. Mm -hmm. And number three is, is you're starting to steer the ship toward more of a quantitative methodological question and you're going to use existing data in some way to help you accomplish that. Is that what you were going to say? (laughs) Did you take your ginkgo biloba this morning? Because, you, you, dude, you, you don't have to be mean. Wow, that what was kind inc- of what kind of mean thing is? I don't even you, know what you, a gecko <laughs> balabala. The hell is that? Google it. Yeah, you perfectly recounted everything that I had said, which first, which is shocking in and of itself, and then you actually brought some really nice crystallization to that third thing. Go, man, go. So, what do you got? But that was it. I, I just had to right, summary. Let's go to number four. Anything. <laughs> go to number four. So I have written papers in number one. I've written papers in number two. And I've really liked both of those and found both of those challenging and fulfilling. Mm-hmm. I really get excited about three. Mm-hmm. That notion of developing a unique quantitative contribution that is either based on or uses as a mechanism existing data, I think is hugely important. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to draw on real data from real people with real measures, Mm -hmm. I think that is embedding your work in the context within which it's being used. Yeah. So can you start me off with an example of a paper that has a data set and is going to use it for methodological purposes? Well, I picture all of science like this, but this mm-hmm. in particular is kind of sitting in front of a sounding board mm-hmm. with different knobs on it. Yeah. And you can turn one at a time. You can turn two at a time. You can turn one at a given level of the other, vice versa. And so I kind of think about it in that way. So for example, say you had a single data set mm-hmm. and you want to use a single data set with a single set sample with a single set of measures to compare alternative analytic approaches. So yeah. let's Let's say that you want to look at three methods in the literature that have been proposed for evaluating a particular question or to try to isolate a particular effect. And so holding the knob of data set sample measures constant, Mm -hmm. you click the knob through model A, model B, model C, Mm -hmm. and do a thoughtful compare and contrasting. Maybe you fit a growth curve model to items, ignoring that they're ordinal, Mm -hmm. and then fit it again, modeling the ordinality with a nonlinear model. And then you fit it again by doing something else, using robust method, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And again, I say careful and thoughtful, compare and contrast of the different results. I like that type of paper a lot, actually. Um, it's methodological, it's embedded within the context of a data set, and it also really can help people in substantive areas to sneak in a new method, right? Mm. That we have been doing, and I'm making 
this example up. We have been doing k-means cluster analysis for a long time. Let's take a look at what we get out of that versus some version of mixture models and, and look at the strengths, look at the weaknesses. Open up a, a little conversation about parametric and non-parametric and the assumptions underlying those. Is that consistent with this particular domain as you interpreted it? Absolutely. And so imagine having model A, model B, model C that you're mm -hmm. comparing and contrasting. And then you say pooling over the results, we included an additional model mm -hmm. that we developed as part of the other three, which is now model D. And then you've got a quantitative subway jump. There you go. I like that a lot. You know, when you describe this type of paper, one way I think about this, and I'll use your terminology, that this is very much kind of a poking stick framework. And mm. what I mean by that is imagine you have a data set and a model that you're interested in using with that data set. But in the spirit of poking, or as you just described this time, turning the knobs, what if you transformed the data? Exactly. How robust would your inferences be? What if you introduced some missingness that was clearly not missing at random? What would happen to your inference as a result? So this is a, a really nice space to try to feel out the robustness of the inferences that you make to different tweaks that might exist in the data. I think that's actually a little bit of a wrinkle on what I was talking about. What I was talking about is like you have a native real data set mm -hmm. and you compare different approaches, different assumptions, different models. Mm -hmm. What you're introducing, if I'm understanding you correctly, is a, what I also think is a very exciting approach, which is to take a data set and then mess around with it a little bit. <laughs> because that's what uh -huh. you're talking about, right? Is what if you punch out missing yeah. data yeah. that is missing not at random and then compare that to data that are missing completely at random or missing at random that came natively with the data file? Another one is I have always been fascinated by outlier diagnostics, mm -hmm. just regression diagnostics, DF fits, DF betas, deleted residuals, Mahalanobis D squared, all of these things. Mm -hmm. So take a data set and take a very small number of cases and push them out a little bit. Yeah. Right? Add a little constant to a subset and what are the impact of those? And so. I really, really like that idea is taking a data file and messing with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Makes for a very interesting paper. All right, so what else you got under this number three? I would do a, maybe even a close first cousin of what we just talked about. We have a single data set, and now we're going to set the modeling knob to a single model. Mm -hmm. All right, so whatever it might be, a growth model, a mixture model, uh, whatever it is, some survival analysis, so you've got a single data set and a single model, mm -hmm. but then you begin to examine it under different conditions that you select out of the data. Mm -hmm. For example, Ken Share and Christy Jackson and Doug Steinley, I don't know, six or eight years ago, have a really neat paper. It's in Journal of Abnormal Psychology. It has Cat's Cradle in the title, and it's on growth mixture models. But what they did is... They had a single data set, and they had a single analytic approach, this growth mixture model. And what they did is they first fit it to all eight time points that were available in the data set. But then they fit it to the first seven, and then the first six, <laughs> and then the first five. They then fit it to one through four and compared that to five through eight. Mm -hmm. And they then did it to the even numbered, and they then did it to the odd number. 
and compared in this almost experimental way. It's not an experimental way, but what if this study only had seven time points? What if this study only had six time points? What would you have concluded if you only followed them for six years? Mm -hmm. Because we can tell you what it would have been when you followed them for eight years. I think that is hugely promising as a general approach. Absolutely. It gives, you know, like I said, it gives you a sense of the robustness of your inference, both in terms of these data, but also it probably informs what someone might be doing the next time around, right? It looks like we only need to use this smaller subset of times and still we get a pretty clean inference that we're interested in. I like that a lot. And when you start thinking in this way, there are all sorts of neat things you could do. So some of my work over the last couple of years, I've gotten really interested in scoring. And so you could have a data file that has a set of indicators, and you could score those using different strategies. Take a mean, compute them under principal components, compute mm-hmm. them under principal axis factoring, compute them using moderated nonlinear factor analysis, then put them all in a mediation model mm-hmm. and compare and contrast the results that you would get depending upon how you scored the items into a scale. I like that. And that reminds me of an example that is related. It has to do with the issue of parceling. Let's imagine you have a factor at multiple time points or a factor in a variety of groups, and there are 38 items that are supposed to be indicating a particular factor. Well, what happens if you start collapsing things down? You know, to what extent are you still getting the same inference at the latent level when you are somehow reducing the amount of information in the measurement portion of your model? To me, that falls under this number three. Oh, exactly. One of the things that I find interesting about everything that we're talking about right now, in a typical empirical test of a theory, you're striving to tell a cohesive story. Mm -hmm. You want to triangulate on constants. But in these kinds of analyses, I think that actually we strive to find some kind of discrepancy or some kind of contradiction. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that we're motivated by that, but... It's a different kind of prevailing wind that we're unfurling our sails in. Mm -hmm. We kind of want to see, well, what if you parcel? What if you sum score? What if you factor score? Are there differences? And then use that as an intellectual goose to try to understand what is the source of those? What is the nature of those? Why would we draw different conclusions across these different approaches? And so I think it's just an interesting juxtaposition in what motivates us in this kind of work. I feel like you're on a roll here. No ping pong. Forget it. Uh, Play with yourself. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to admit that I get excited about this. I do. I do Mm -hmm. have a couple more ideas because I think a source of some of the best quantitative work comes out of real data. Mm -hmm. I think it comes out of actual subjects with actual items that are legitimately designed and collected So I do get excited about that. I have a couple more. So I'm going to go back to the board with all the knobs. What we've been doing is on a couple of these is we've held the knob at a single data set and moved the model knob. Mm -hmm. Here, I want to do a weird thing and hold the model knob constant and Mm -hmm. switch the data set Mm -hmm. knob. So for example, say you had a particular question and a particular analytic framework that you were considering, 
But you were interested in, well, what is the role of sampling frame or Mm -hmm. measurement or age period cohort kind of questions? And so what you want to do maybe is say, let's think about a growth model. And I have three different data sets Mm -hmm. that in some way assess my constructs in at least as close a way as can be comparable. Mm -hmm. And you want to fit the same model to different data files. It's maybe explicitly examining, well, does sampling frame have a role in this? Mm -hmm. If you have one that maybe is a simple random sample, you have one that maybe is a complex sample that has sampling weights, and you have one that is self-selected into Mm. some kind of condition, you compare your model across the different data sets. I think there's some interesting ideas embedded in there. That's extremely interesting. And and it does tie back to like integrative data analysis stuff, which for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. And it really unpacks this particular type of study. I have no idea what number episode it was. (laughs) Did we do an episode on IDA? (laughs) Dude, I got to start writing these down. (laughs) Okay, you're going to let me run. I got two more. Go, man, go. Okay, so now, are you ready for this, my knobs? All right, here's a weird one. I am now going to say, hold it constant on the data set, hold it constant on the model. But here's something cool. And Mm -hmm. one of my grad students a few years back did this as part of his dissertation, Jim McGinley. Mm -hmm. And he's up in Pittsburgh now. As part of his dissertation, and me being the amazing advisor that I am, Mm -hmm. is I told him not to do it. Right. <laughs> All right. I did. I really did. Uh-huh. I said, don't do this. And and he said, okay. And then he went and did it without telling me and then brought it back. Mm-hmm. And it was so cool that I was like, oh, yeah, you should have done this the whole time. But he had a large public access data set. It had, I think, over 40,000 subjects. And he had a single modeling framework that he was working on. But he randomly drew smaller samples from that Mm -hmm. and did a simulation, but based on the real data. And then he showed, well, what happened if you did a thousand draws of a sample of 250? What happens if you did a thousand draws of a sample of 500 and was able to then compare it to the Mm 40,000? treating that as the population and look at things like bias and mean squared error and and parameter recovery confidence intervals. And I thought that was very clever. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. My last one. And then I I was going to say, I promise I'll quit talking, but I I don't make promises that I can't fulfill. Mm -hmm. This one I find interesting, little dangerous, which is also why I find it interesting. Mm. Take a published finding and then reanalyze them using a different method. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a little dangerous. You don't want to be bitchy about it. You don't want to say, aha, gotcha, this is different. But Mm -hmm. to say, all right, so-and-so did this in this way. There's this new method that's available. Mm -hmm. And we're going to reanalyze these data to demonstrate how some additional component might be extracted from the characteristics of the data. So I will tell you, I like that one very, very much. And uh, I might have mentioned before that in the some of the advanced methodological classes that I teach, 
where I get students from a variety of different departments around campus and even neighboring institutions uh, around the D.C. Baltimore area, the kinds of projects that students will do at the end of the semester often revolve around what you describe. I'll give you one example, but it really represents this. An instrument was developed using exploratory factor analysis techniques or it was developed using more modern confirmatory factor analysis techniques in a particular population. Either way, the students will reanalyze the data either with, let's say if an exploratory factor analysis had been used, they try some confirmatory model on it. And I will tell you that things fall apart an awful lot. You know, imagine an instrument that was developed in 1974, and there's nothing wrong with 1974, but we have different standards now for what constitutes construct validity, for example, and different different guidelines that we use. It's fascinating to watch some things fall apart, and that is a tremendously valuable publication for a particular discipline if you can get people to buy into it. That's really the challenge sometimes when an instrument has decades behind it and people are treating it as though it is gospel and you are writing a paper to say, you know, actually the emperor never had clothes to begin with. Um, that's, a, that's a trickier kind of paper, but so, so powerful. And then the other type that I mentioned is when, let's just say an instrument was developed and someone wants to use published data to try to cross-validate it, and they go, well, this instrument doesn't hold up at all when we're applying this particular method to data that come from this other arena. And can lead to incredibly important insights about mm -hmm. how these are used in practice. So John Hip and Dan Bauer wrote a really important paper about start values and mixture models. Mm -hmm. In work that they did, they started finding a lot of local solutions. They were convinced that these models are very, very sensitive to start values. Mm -hmm. And the mixture models at the time were run at risk of getting a converged solution, but that it's a local minima. It's not a global minima. Mm -hmm. They identified a published paper that had used these methods. They re-extracted the data based on the description that was provided in the paper. It was a public access data set. Mm -hmm. And they showed that one of the classes that had been identified in the published paper was a local solution. Mm -hmm. And they reanalyzed the data using multiple start values and found there was a global solution that did not include that class. And now the use of thousands of random start values is a standard approach in mixture models. And it came from that insight that was all based on a reanalysis of published data. Yeah, it's a huge insight. It changed the way that mixture modeling was practiced. And so much of the modeling that we did prior to that had been the types of models that maybe didn't have such a treacherous likelihood terrain and you move over to the mixture world and the terrain is really bumpy. And that was, I would say, seminal work to change the practice of how people do things. I love that. And it was all based on what we're talking about right now. I think we've puzzled through some really nice options for a methodological paper. I know you and you're in balance and you're in symmetry and we're on point three. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think there's a point four. You know, if there hadn't been, I would make one up right now just so. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I can come up with a point four. It might overlap in the end with one that we've already had. But, you know, a number of people out there, us included, are people who try to make up entirely new quantitative methods, 
right? We go into our blacksmith shop and forge things, or we go into our basement where the Legos, or what was it, Kapla blocks? Kapla um, <laughs> blocks. Oh, they're awesome. If you have kids, uh-huh. just Kapla, K-A-P-L-A. They're the best kid toy <laughs> ever invented. Today's Quantic Camp brought to you by Kapla blocks. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but we try to create new methods, or at least we make some ice cream sandwiches that we treat as though they're new methods. And so when we do so, we really would like to convince the world that we're not a saddle in search of a horse. And we like to find a data set that matches that, that we can really show the the inferential power associated with the new method that we have. I will say that I really like it better when I have a data set that I say, oh my gosh, we need to invent a new method to try to address the question that that data set is just begging to have answered. But oftentimes you come up with a new method and you want to have it illustrated. And so you do have to go out and find that. That's yet another tricky needle to thread, Mm -hmm. I think, because... If you do have a more novel kind of quantitative development, you very much want to demonstrate it. And I very much support that. Mm-hmm. You want to show that this can be used, that it has real applicability, and that it has real use in the trenches. But at the same time, I start losing patience when somebody says, I'm done with all the work, I just need to find a data set. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very important part of these novel quantitative developments, but it needs to be done with some sincerity and thoughtfulness rather than checking a box. So let me ask you this. Do you think a paper then is just fine not to have one if if it's a nice, meaningful quantitative development? I think it depends. I think that if you convinced me in analytic expressions Uh and an application maybe to a well-crafted artificial data set and then to leave off with the next logical step will be to expand the application of this method to real data to observe how it behaves in practice, Mm -hmm. yeah, I would buy that. Okay, good. Do you want to wrap up? My butt has kind of gone to sleep, and so I think that's a sign that we really need to just stop talking. Just to place this in context, almost all of our recordings are done in the morning. We do 9, usually 9 to 11 is when we set aside time. Mm -hmm. And we are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and right now... It is 9.05 p.m. on the East Coast. Greg is three hours behind me sitting on a bunk bed on the West Coast. I'm not even going to tell you how that is going. Uh But yeah, my butt going to sleep is official criteria for stopping this conversation. I think this is a really nice place to leave off. Setting blood flow aside... Mm -hmm. I think we've really puzzled through different ways that you could use existing data, whether it be to rigorously evaluate a real research hypothesis using a novel way, whether it's using it as a mechanism to teach, whether it's using data to develop novel methodological things. That's what we seem to talk the most about, but that's mostly just because I got excited and didn't let you talk. (laughs) And then use it as a demonstration for a more straight up quant. I think all of those are exciting possibilities. Maybe where we go next is to pick, I don't know, we haven't talked about this, so we're doing this live. Mm -hmm. Pick like a poster child paper Mm -hmm. is to say, well, what if somebody were thinking about doing this? How might we puzzle through that? I like that, especially if we're able to pick out some good ones that we know of, or alternatively, ones that we've done. Uh, (laughs) 
I tell my daughters uh-huh. is I am an incredible role model to you is just whatever I do, uh-huh. don't. <laughs> Just don't be me. And they're on board. Okay, so I like that very much. We will decide upon a particular type of paper, and you and I will dive into that a bit more next time. Leaving our friends out there with an assignment then, I would say we've asked them to come up with a research idea. We've asked them to think about some journals that might be appropriate outlets and maybe dig into those journals a little bit. Now it might be time for them to start poking around at some possible data sources that might help them for those types of papers that that will need something like this. So get familiar with some of the data sources. We mentioned some at the beginning of the show. We also will go ahead and post some examples of data sources online on Twitter. And I will say right now that we're also going to encourage you to do so as well, to share some of the data repositories that you have found particularly useful so that we have them within the Twitter community for all of us to be able to find to enrich our work. So look for that coming your way. And in addition, stating the obvious yet again, think about your own data Mm -hmm. and think about your own existing data through a new lens. Maybe you have a data set that was designed and collected for a particular purpose, but go back and look at it through a quantitative lens and think, you know, that thing that kept you up so late at night trying to fix Is that something maybe that now is a research question in and of itself? Mm. And then in addition to your own data, sit in your chair and think visualizing your mind up and down your whole way at work. Who are some of your colleagues and who in this crazy time to be alive would you like to reach out to? Great. And say, hey, I got a bonehead idea and my first thought was to pull you down with me. (laughs) It's what we do. So why don't you go massage your tired old man butt, and we will come together again soon, next week. Okay. Good night, everybody. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay. That's right. (laughs) Goodbye. Uh, Can I go home now, Greg?